challenges remaining my name is ben rosenberg and joining me for the sixth time is my dear friend courtney Nguyen. hi courtney hello ben welcome back home thank you i i for those of you following us around the country slash world as we follow tennis around the country slash world this is my part of my 36 hours at home in between miami and charleston so i'm very excited about that um although it does feel like I've just been thrown out of a hamster wheel. I'm a little disoriented and just kind of feel like getting back in the wheel is the only way I'll ever get, you know, my my groundings again. So I, I have just an amazing mem- mental image of you inside of a hamster wheel right now. And I feel like it's so vivid. It just, <laughs> it just makes sense. I feel, like, I feel but, like it's not a hard transition to make. Exactly. But, it, but what you said is absolutely true, though. Is that I've definitely found that, uh, especially traveling. I traveled more last year than I did this year. But I think that um, you get really used to being um, in the rhythm that is the road, yeah. which is actually quite chaotic um, and unpredictable. And so it shouldn't, like, especially the way that I'm built, I shouldn't like it. Yeah. Like, but whenever I am at home and there's, like, a major tournament going on and I'm not there, I just feel a little itchy. Yeah. Start, start clawing at my, uh, at my uh, forearm veins and things like that. And... It's just, like, it's exhausting for people. <clears throat> don't go to tennis tournaments very much to go for one day and spend the entire day there and spend mm-hmm. like you know 11 hours watching tennis that's a lot mm-hmm. but i've gotten to the point and you've gotten to the point where you know we can show up somewhere and spend a week or two weeks doing it for 14 days straight and we with the extra media at the beginning and end of the days yep and we just sort of i mean and that makes me and then some on that circuit circa uh, circadian rhythm or whatever. Mm-hmm. And now I can't sit around, uh, lounge around at home and feel like I have any energy. So Yeah, no, it's definitely weird. And I think that it's even, I mean, people kind of underestimate how, not exhausting, but how grueling it can be to cover a tournament, especially tournaments like Miami and Indian Wells, which are, you know, big tournaments. And then obviously when we were in Melbourne um, for the Aussie Open. But yeah. um, I think it's particularly difficult for Ben and I, at least we've kind of bonded over this fact where we love watching the tennis. And so even when we're off the clock, like, you know, a lot of times you'll see, you know, other writers leaving for dinner or, you know, calling it a day because their deadlines are passed. They don't have anything to write anymore. Um, You know, that happens to the both of us as well. And yet we still find ourselves saying, well, well, no, 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 let's, I just want to see one set of Bartoli, you know, ag coal. And I'm like, yeah, that sounds, that sounds about right. I would like to watch that as well. <laughs> I mean, I had, I had set it up. I had set it up on my last day it was yesterday. It was the day of women's quarterfinals second and the first men's quarterfinals. And I had set it up cause I was flying out that night. I was just going to write about Venus versus Red Vonska. And that was it. So I fin I wrote about that, watched the match, wrote about it, did the press done. And then I was like, well, while I'm here, why don't I just sit around and watch Murray Tipsarovich for a while? Because I clearly haven't had enough tennis in the last month. Right. So, I mean, it's an addiction, but it's not something 
It is. I've, I've been made fun of by many, many other writers and media folk about being like the last one in the media room. Mm-hmm. And it's not because I'm there to, you know, write a story or, or to, you know, interview the player or do press. Like the minute the last ball ends, I pack up and I leave. <laughs> but I just can't help it. I love I love watching the live tennis. You just never know. Hopefully we don't lose that rookie enthusiasm, but we might need to for self-preservation. That's the thing. It's totally it's it's really hard to sustain. Yeah. So, but speaking of, um, I have no idea where the transition is there. Edit this out. So one of the big stories in Miami this week was the comeback of Venus Williams, which had just barely begun by the time we did our first episode yesterday. Uh, not yesterday, last week. And she had just won her first round match against Kamiko Date Krom, and she was about to play number three, Patrick Kvitova, and... I thought she had a chance. I don't think you gave her too much chance, Courtney, but she went. I... Go ahead. No, no, that's right. Yeah, so she went on to beat Petra in three, Bagel in the third set, went on to beat then uh, Anna Ivanovic. No, sorry, went on to win a crazy, ugly match against Alexandra Wozniak, then beat Anna Ivanovic, then did relatively respectively, although she looked super tired against Aga Radwanska in the quarters. So in her first tournament back, Venus Williams makes the quarters. Courtney, from the okay. matches you saw, what were your thoughts on her run at this huge tournament making, winning four matches? Yeah, I mean, I, I her form against Kamiko didn't necessarily uh, shock me. I, I thought that, okay, yeah, this is your first uh, match back. And I think I mentioned this before um, in the last podcast that I, I, I figured that the form would be there. It was still rusty, but it was there. Um, but my question was whether or not <clears throat> she could recover between matches. And so I think that when we talked about the Kvitova match initially, that was my big hang-up, was I think that healthy, yeah, Venus absolutely can take out Petra, uh, but can she recover in that 48 hours? And, and because this is kind of the first time that she would be really managing her illness and her body in a tournament situation. So, you know, so that is really what surprised me, was her ability to kind of hold it together and and to play um, from match by match. And I thought her best match was really the one against Ivanovich, which from the first ball to last was really high quality. That was, I think, the best women's match I saw in the tournament. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was heavy hitting. You know, Ivanovich was getting frustrated towards the third set, but she was still playing really good tennis. She was just kind of, I think, mentally checked out. I think that Venus kind of beat her on the mental, kind of bullied her mentally. Um, and Anna under, knew that she was playing really well in that second set, and I think she still lost it 6-2. Yeah, it was 6-7, um, 6-2, 6-2. Yeah, and she had played really well and had just eked out the first set 7-6. So I think that psychologically she kind of backed down a little bit in that match. But it was a great match. Um, and so that match really impressed me. And then when she wasn't able to kind of turn it around for Redvanska, that wasn't really surprising. Um, I thought that her comments after that Redwanska match were really interesting, that she said that it wasn't an issue of conditioning. So it didn't seem, it wasn't that she was out of shape and that's why she got tired. Yeah, I, don't know if, sounded... I don't know if you saw the whole transcript on that, but that was a very testy opening moment in the, tra- in the, uh, in the press conference. The reporter from a Miami-based reporter asked her, you know, how she felt given that, you know, her conditioning wasn't where it wants, where it wants, where it should be. And she was like, let's be very clear. My conditioning has always been good. My conditioning is good. I don't have a conditioning problem. So I think she saw conditioning as being code for, you know, lack of work ethic or something. And she was very right. good to shoot that down. And she's yeah, and understandably about so. the struggles of just, you know, the newness of dealing with an autoimmune disease. And a lot of, in a lot of ways, the newness of any athlete 
dealing with a condition like she has because there isn't a real blueprint for it. So especially in a sport like tennis where you can have such different turnarounds and have to play a lot in one week, it's not like she's a, I don't know, an NFL player who can take out some plays and only play, you know, once a week and really manage her time. Or a baseball player who is manager can, you know, put in on only certain days of the lineup depending on energy level. Right. This is something like, where she has to, when the bell rings, she has to step out there. And it yep. wasn't clear that she was very ready for it against Radvonska. But all the same, I was still incredibly impressed by just oh. how, how well she was able to do, given all that. Absolutely. I mean, I think that my biggest takeaway and what I loved watching her play was, um, you know, by the time that TV turned on and you could actually see her play. Mm-hmm. But um, what I loved was seeing the aggression and, and, and getting forward to the net and seeing her finally, at least in my eyes, at least within the last, like, you know, for me, maybe five, six, seven years of watching her for the first time this week, it felt like she was treating the hard courts like a grass court. Yeah. And she was finally playing that game where she knew keep the points keep the points short, hit an approach shot, run to the net, and let the chips fall where they may. And I really, really loved seeing that. I think I, I've kind of been harping on that for years now, kind of being like that's that's what she needs to do on hard courts, and for whatever reason she won't do it, even though she has the ability to yeah. do it. So that was really great. And I think I think this. Uh... This illness, Sjogren's, has given her the impetus to try to keep points short. I mean, she's been very explicit about that, saying, my strategy is to keep points short. If I'm in rallies, it won't work for me. Which I think, yeah, will, which, is, which has always been her mindset to a certain degree, but now it's completely black and white for her. So it's been, it's been cool to watch her doing that. And there's really no reason with her, with her game and her early success in her career on hard courts winning two U.S. Opens why the much better results on grass in the later parts of her career should couldn't translate onto hard i think it's just mostly mental about when she steps on grass she knows the kind of tennis she has to play and she hasn't that realization hasn't been there for her on hard in the last yeah because i think that she's she's been able to get away with it on hard generally right and i think that there is kind of sometimes i get the sense with her and and maybe sometimes with serena and a few other players where they they kind of feel like they want to beat you from the baseline yeah Almost, it's almost like they feel about the net the way that Federer felt about the drop shot for so long. Like it's like cheating or it's like a cop out, yeah. and it's like no, I, you know, and no people think that I I can only win if I get to the net. So I'm gonna teach, show them that I can win playing from the baseline. That could totally be reading into things, but that's always kind of a little bit of the chip that it seemed like was on, especially Venus's shoulders sometimes when she stepped on hard. Um, so yeah, I mean, great story. It can't be underestimated enough. I mean, I think that it says so much about her as a champion within the sport that by the time she had beat, you know, by the time she got to Ivanovic and then Redvanska, we almost kind of stopped talking about the illness Yeah, and it became like, can she win another one? And, and the expectations almost returned to where they would have been regardless of whether she was sick or not, which is unfair to her. But at the same time, like that's a compliment to kind of, I think our belief in her absolutely, and what she's capable of. And I think for the most part, she was able to keep that belief about herself. I mean, she said, that she didn't have any expectations of what the week would be like for her. But at the same time, she always believes in herself enough that she can win matches when she steps on court. And, and if she had it. been, if she, that was the worst, that Radvanska match was by far the worst she looked physically in terms of fatigue. But if she had been at the level she was at against Ivanovic, against Radvanska, she could have beaten her. And then if she'd gotten Bartoli, she could have beaten her, I think it's fair to say. So, yeah. you know, speaking of Marion Bartoli, 
can get to her next. Yeah, sure. Marion Bartoli had was the uh, the name, and well, it will be sort of in the record books as the one to end the streak. Did you think that Marion Bartoli, like, I think we got a question um, on the NCR um, Twitter mm-hmm. about who either of us thought would be the person or the woman to end the streak, which I thought was an interesting question. Did you? What were your thoughts on that? For all services asked us, um, who did you think would break Vika's streak? And then we'll get to the other part of the question later. But yeah, no, basically, I thought that once I saw how she struggled against Shabolkova, and I was all ready to see her lose to Shabolkova because she was down what? As rank was down 6 and 6 I think 5-1 maybe also, yeah. So I had that story pretty much all written, ready to go, and then I had to scrap it. So thanks, thanks Vika for that, or thanks, thanks both of you for contributing to that. But uh, yeah, no. Once that happened, I saw Marion as a dangerous player because Marion and Dominica uh, play pretty similar tennis when you think about it. I mean, both low to the ground, really flat, really aggressive hitters, and Agreed. and they're also apparently best friends, which I they would, are. I would not have expected. Or according Never to would have. I mean, I don't know how these things happen, but that was her <laughs> answer to a question she was asked recently. So, um, but yeah. Once that happened, I thought she could. And it was clear that um, I think it's fair to say that Victoria was probably running out of some gas by the end. But for the for 99% of that match, Marion just sort of, you know, brutalized her off the ground. No doubt. Yeah, yeah I mean, I thought the same thing. I mean, you know, Sabolkova definitely showed that, that, you know, Vika can be hit through. Yeah. Um, you're going to have to take a lot of risk. And you're going to have to be a person that, that either can just straight up hit through her just with sheer power, which I think is what Sabolkova was doing a little bit more, or what Bartoli was able to do, which is sheer, sheer power, but on top of that, take the ball so early as to just not give Azarenka any time to recover between right. shots. And I think that's really what, what made the difference um, and why she was able to do it as opposed to Sabolkova, because Sabolkova, she, she kind of lets the ball drop a little bit. Yeah, and Sharapova before her, too. I mean, Sharapova hits the ball plenty hard, but she doesn't hit it early. She doesn't Sharapova take it early enough. for the ball and then... Exactly. So. so so in that way, I just kind of always thought that it was going to be a Serena or a Kvitova that was going to end it because they have the sheer power yeah. to do it. And, and Marion is just such a wild card. You just never know which one you're going to get. And the one that stepped out on the court last night, I mean, it made me think of almost how Roddick handled Federer, you know, where it just kind of came out of nowhere. Yeah. Um, and there was a spring in the step and there was things that they were doing that you just hadn't seen them do consistently before. Yeah. Um, and that was, you know, I mean, it was a pretty inspired performance from Marion. And and I just, I, what I did love about it is this notion that this woman who, you know, Vika's what, what, was 26 and 0 going into that match. She'd beaten pretty much everybody. And the people that she was beating were pretty much all uh, almost um, very prototypical women tennis players of today of this age which is either she was beating like the big bashers or she was beating you know the Rivanska you know Rivanska is a little bit different but right. but players that maybe didn't have like the Mona Barthels or something like kind of have like a basic game yeah. right so leave it to the girl who has like the weirdest game on the tour yeah. to no. beat to, to end the streak I love that I love that as a storyline it, it was it was it was a cool moment it was cool seeing her get to do that and like I tweeted about after the match. She has now a record of three and five against number ones, which is really that might not it's a losing record. It might not seem impressive right away, 
But for someone who's never been inside the top five to have won three of her eight matches against number ones, that's huge. Mm-hmm. That shows her ability to rise to the occasion. And she was all about the occasion on that night, fist pumping to a ridiculous extent. Like every, like between every single point, just like constant pumping, 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 jumping all around, even more than usual. So it, I don't. It was it was it was weird to watch, especially watching it because I was watching it at the airport waiting for my flight home. It's weird watching it, like, around non-tennis people who were sort of just, like, when they did look up, they were like, they just seemed confused by everything that was going on. <laughs> yeah, it was, it's, it, it was an interesting moment. And I do think that I do expect Azarenka to win at least one clay tournament. I think this is not going to completely knock her off her bicycle totally. Well, right now she's only scheduled for Madrid and Rome, right? So she's not doing, she's not going to defend her title in Marbella or anything like that, and she's not playing Stuttgart. So I think it's it could smart. be. I think that's smart, though. I don't. I, <laughs> yeah, I no, absolutely. This year. With this schedule, I mean, and and I think that, you know, I think that you and I have maybe said this before. I think maybe when we were talking about Kvitova with respect to kind of swag scheduling, mm-hmm. swagger scheduling, of like bank on your quality. Yeah. Like, don't do this thing where you play a bunch of tournaments because you're worried that you're not going to do well like that, you know, or that you're going to need to pick up points because you need to play back to back to back tournaments and you have to play the internationals and the premier 700s and things like that. Like, no bank on your quality and go play the big ones and win them. Look at Sharapova. I mean, credit to her when you really step back. I mean, because her losses to Azarenka have been so bad that it's easy to like, not it's easy to get mired in that negativity and not step back and realize this woman has played four tournaments. She's reached the finals of three of them. Two of them, you know, well, four, well, yeah, like two of them, she lost to Azarenka. She had a shock loss in Paris to Kerber. But, I mean, she is a solid number two. Absolutely. And, you know, for all the complaints about the WTA rankings over the last few years, I mean, you kind of have to like how things are shaping up for them this year. If you if you like oligarchy, that's what you're getting in the WTA right now. Mm-hmm. So that's been good. But we didn't, we were planning to talk about it, I think, but when you mentioned the scheduling, makes me think of Kim Kleisters, who is also at this tournament. Mm-hmm. Kim Kleisters, I think, I've been going back and forth using this term, but not she's, she seems, she feels semi-retired at this point. She doesn't seem like, she said that when she got to Miami, that she was um, really having a hard time adjusting to the outdoor court, just playing outside because she'd been in Belgium training before and had only been in Miami for a few days previously. Which I asked, so why didn't you come down earlier? You weren't doing anything else. And she's like, well, you know, Jada's in school. and J- Jada, that's right. Yeah, J- Jada's yeah. in school and, you know, in Belgium. So we can't really move there too much. It's not like I can pick up and move to Florida now and stuff. And then, okay, so what are you going to do in the clay season? Um, oh, you know, I'm going to train indoors for a while. And then a week before Madrid, I'm going to go down and train on clay some. Just, you know, not – It's. I don't think it's fair to say that she's – you know, I, she's not quitting, but she's definitely not giving 100% to be the best possible, have the best possible tournament she ever could in 2012, which is just weird because we're not used to that in tennis. No, we're not. And I think that I think that the big, you know, this is a bit ironic because la- I think two weeks ago on the toss on, on Sports Illustrated, I debated this with Chris Otto mm-hmm. about who, between Serena and, and Kim, who would have the better year. Yeah just based off slams and the Olympics. And I had picked Kim and he had picked Serena. And that was obviously before all of this in Miami. And what Miami kind of really solidified, at least in my head is, is yeah, I mean, I think that Kim's kind of done. And I, and I think that you can't be a part-time player anymore. I think that Serena's loss shows this as well. 
um, that that the quality, Pete Bodo kind of wrote about this a little bit about, you know, when he wrote up um, Bartoli's win over Vika, where he said, you know, it's actually a credit to the rest of the field that this streak was ended earlier than Novak's. Yeah. You know, that, that it says a lot about, about you know, the depth of the field and, and how difficult it is to string along those matches and to win consistently week in and week out. Well you know, and so, and so, you know, I think there's a lot to that. I mean, I just don't think that you can parachute in. And, but at the same time, I think that there's a really big difference between Serena and Kim, which is exactly what you identified, which is that Kim is like, not even putting herself in a basic position to be able to put your, herself to be able to parachute into these tournaments. I mean, Serena at least is like training in LA or training in Palm Palm Beach. You know, she, I mean, she looks fit as all get out. Mm-hmm. She is creaming the ball. She's just match rusty. Right. Her her footwork is not there, and she needs the tournaments to get that there. And she did. Whereas, and she did have an injury um, after Fed Cup. I do think that she would have played Monterey. Yes, I do. Actually, I I agree with you. Yeah. I agree. I, I think that she was going to play Monterey because she had said at, at Melbourne after she lost, she wanted tournaments. And she wound up going and there she... to do some sort of sponsor obligation with uh, something with Dolko playing on like on top of water or something. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. if she was so... going to make the flight down to Monterey, I think she would have played the tournament. But yeah, but she's she's scheduled for Charleston, you know, so she's going to play there next week. So I think that that at least Serena is showing some intent and some some kind of understanding of what hunger. it takes to, to do it. A hunger. Exactly. Um, and with, and with Kim, like, what is it? She has like a tear in her hip muscle that's going to sideline her for four weeks as as well. So she's not going to do well on clay. I mean, she's not, it's not like she's going to be spending. She joked with me at one of her, after she lost about her clay schedule, that she's allergic to clay, which, you know, but she said, quickly said, oh, just kidding. But I mean, you know, there is some truth to that, I think. Yeah. I mean, ever since she she had, she had her earliest successes in her career on clay, her first two Grand Slam finals were the 01 and 03 French Open finals, which she lost both of. And I think those were sort of tough losses for her, the first one mm. being that 12-10 uh, in the third to Capriati, yeah. and the next one being a very lopsided loss to her countrywoman, a longtime rival, Justine Ennen, which sort of put her yeah. on the wrong side of that rivalry for the next few years. So, yeah, I yeah. think she just has bad memories of Clay almost, because her, it really should suit her game with how well she moves. Yeah, but she I don't know. She just... Uh... I don't think that her she's training in a way that allows her body to withstand a a, a quick succession of matches yeah. of actual match play. Serena, you know? Serena and, does. Um, Serena had last summer where she yep. really showed that she can get everything together. That's the thing is like as much as anybody wants to kind of do the whole she can't be part time and blah, blah blah. All I got to do is point them to last summer that run from Stanford all the way through the U.S. Open. Yeah, you know. She wins that final, and the whole story is so different. Absolutely. Um, so, so she, I think Serena can because she trains and, and has that desire, and I think that Kim's a bit checked out. So, and I think at the end of the day, since Serena is probably the more naturally gifted and naturally talented of the two, mm-hmm. um, you got you just got to give the edge to Serena now. Yeah. But Serena had a tough time in her what was it quarterfinal match? Yeah. This tournament losing. I think fair to say, very unexpectedly in straight sets to Caroline Wozniacki, 6-4, 6-4. Wozniacki had never beaten Serena before, never beaten Venus, never beaten Kleisters, hadn't beaten Ennin and Hingis when they were around, too, for what that's worth. Hadn't beaten anyone who'd won four more Grand Slams, I think, was the cutoff. And, yeah, that was a really sort of surprising match that I think reflected some on Serena and her lack of match play and the 
la- and the increased amount of errors she had in this run of hers that she did not have at all during her US Open series run. But mo- more to the point, I think, was just showing what Caroline Wozniacki can do when she plays assertive, um, non-passive, thoughtful, meaningful shots off every ball. Yeah, thoughtfully aggressive. Yeah. Just a tick. I mean, and then it's such a small you know, adjustment. I mean, it really is. It really is. And she and to be, I mean, she served really well against Serena. She out Serena. Was, yeah, I mean, she served really well. She stepped up to the line and she fired it down. And you know, I think that when you are somebody, I mean, I've always been, I've, I've been critical of, of Caroline, um, mainly for for her refusal to kind of revamp her game, not revamp, but at least just kick it up a notch. Right. Um, but I think that her competitive spirit and her fire and her dedication, I mean, I think that she has the kind of base tools to do it. And she showed it again. She lost today to, to Sharapova in three sets. And, and it should never have gone three sets, really, because Maria just went on a complete walkabout in the first set. But um, she did show in a two-game span in the third set when she was finally down, she ratcheted it up and played probably one of the best games that she's played in her oh, entire yeah. career there's, to 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 break back. Um, it was phenomenal. There's, there, and that's there's all a, we've ever wanted. There's a freeness to her game when she's playing somebody who I who she's I losing to or B just thinks she sh- probably shouldn't beat somewhere deep down. Mm-hmm. Like she had once she was already on on the canvas so to speak against Sharapova that really came out when she mm-hmm. stepped on court against Serena who I think she believes is you know probably was probably going to beat. Her. At Hopman Cup, like I've mentioned so many times when she played Kvitova, and Kvitova had dominated her recently, there's sort of lack of expectations and a lack of maybe pressure thinking that she should win really frees her up to play some really good tennis. Because I saw her earlier in the week. I watched a lot of her match against uh, Petra Tchaikovska in the third round. And she was doing her same old thing. Every ball was, you know, within a meter of the tee, you know, on every round yeah. in some direction. She wasn't going for anything. But to do what she did against Serena, I think, really shows the freeness. And it is easier said than done to translate that to the rest of your matches. But I think yeah. there were definitely some positive signs from Caroline when they weren't really expected because she had been playing badly. She did not look good in Indian Wells when she lost 3-2 and two to Ivanovic. She did not look good in the Middle East. She did not look good, really, in Australia. So it'll be interesting yeah. to see what she does with her clay season. For sure. Very interesting. I mean, I think... Um... And her ranking will keep dropping because she can't defend Charleston. So it'll be interesting right. to see how she responds to that, too. I mean, it was, I, I got a bunch of tweets from uh, from people over the course of the last few weeks that were, where they were saying, especially like in Indian Wells in Miami when you get, you know, good practice court access. And they were saying, you know, I watched Caroline practice and she was hitting the crap out of the ball. Yeah. Like, and, and, and they were telling me this as though, like, I hadn't seen it. And I was like, no, I've seen Caroline practice a lot. I mean... Um, you know, whether on clay, hard, grass, whatever, she can clock the ball. This is not a small girl. No. This is not a tiny girl. She is a strong, like almost six foot tall, you know, young kid with a really, really strong base. And Trust, she, it, can it, clock, it, she can clock it when she wants to clock it. She just doesn't do it. And that's what's so frustrating because you know she can. Absolutely. I mean, she, she's a, I don't think it translates on TV, just her sort of <laughs> size. I mean, when she stands next to Rory McIlroy, it's pretty clear which one of them which one of them is bigger, but yeah. Yeah. But I mean, yeah, for her to be able to do that, I think was a huge, huge step for her because that was along with the not winning a slam was the big asterisk in her career. 
never having beaten a Williams sister or Kleisters. Right. Hadn't beaten the very best. And so with that sort of, and Serena wasn't horrible. Serena, I think had a positive winner error differential for most of the match actually. So yeah, it was, it was impressive and unexpected. Yeah. But then, and, and you know, baby steps for Caroline. Yeah. Slowly, hopefully, this all sinks in into her, her mind and she understands that she does have this kind of well of untapped potential that she, she just needs to learn how to control and know when to use it. I mean, because I think that it's probably true. She doesn't have to use it's almost like Andy Murray. Like, against most of the field, you can probably play defensive and use your legs and beat them. Yeah. But. Against the best, you can't. And so, you know what? Nowadays, look, like Caroline, you've been number one. You've got the ranking. So points, we know you can grab those and titles. What we don't know what whether what you can do or don't know whether you can do is to beat the best on the biggest stages. And in order to do that, you got to revamp the game. And just like Andy Murray's done with Lendl, he's hitting his forehand. He's taking control of rallies with, like, you know, midcourt balls. Um, he's making great strides in changing his game so that he can, you know, compete and, and, and win that big slam. And maybe that results in shock losses like he had against, you know, uh, Garcia Lopez in Indian Wells, Mm -hmm. but that's okay. If you get the slam, if you're playing the right way, then it'll work eventually. But if you're playing the wrong way, it's just, it's never going to, you got to lose sometimes to win. Yeah. I think that's an approach. That at least I think Sam Sosa would admit to having in her career for sure, and it eventually mm-hmm. got her there. Maybe there's some yep. losses along the way, but it got her to a slam before Wozniacki, which I don't think a lot of people would have expected. Kvitova too. Yeah. So that uh, Wozniacki loses in the final to Sharapova and Bartoli. Semifinal. Sorry, Wozniacki loses to Sharapova in the semifinal. Sharapova goes on to the final where she will play Aga Radwanska. Uh, th- will this final be anything different than we expect it to be, given their 7-1 head-to-head in favor of Sharapova? Uh, I think it will be. Okay. I think it'll be much closer, mm-hmm. because I think that uh, the Aga that exists in 2012, she isn't even Aga 2.0. She's like, you know, an entirely different operating system. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, this isn't an update. This is different. I mean, Aga I think Vista. that she's... I was going to say Aga Vista, but Windows Vista kind of sucks. Actually, I really, I really think Vista is underrated. I, I've had really? it. I've had my computer for three years with Vista. I've never had any mm. Vista-related problems, really. So, I don't okay. know. I think it was a lot of really? social bad hype that okay. just sort of got taken out of control. Vista's Fair fine. enough. Fine. So, fine. Walker, Aga, use one of your fancy Mac software. Things. Well, I was going to say, you know, like, Aga Snow Leopard, but that doesn't really work. No. Um, but yes, I mean, she's a completely different, you know, uh, you know what? It's like, um, no, that's not right either. Never mind. I was going to say it's like Nintendo 64 versus PlayStation, but they aren't even the same manufacturer. No. So that's she's like work. the, um, she's like the, like, she's like, she used to be like, I don't know, Super Nintendo Aga. And now she's Aga Wii or something. I mean, basically what we're saying is polluted <laughs> analogies. Is that Aga hasn't lost anybody but Azarenka this year. She's 20- Aga is really good now. She's 24-0 against people who are not Azarenka. So, yeah. she's sort of... Now, granted, one of those people... She's not... One of those people was not Sharapova. No. She hasn't played Sharapova this year. Um, so, you know, but uh, but yeah, I mean, obviously Sharapova's had, you know, a, a long... She hasn't lost to her since uh, Aga upset her at the U.S. Open and made a name for herself. 
Um, so I think it'll be interesting. I I just don't see how Aga's going to hold her serve against Maria. Yeah. You were That's the- my biggest thing. Yeah. But She lost six. All the games she lost against Bartoli were breaks of serve. Six of them. <laughs> so. Yeah. We'll see. But then again, we'll if Sharapova's serve is off, Aga can take advantage of that a little bit. Maybe. True. She's been. I mean, Sharapova's been pretty streaky this tournament. I mean, she played great against uh, against Caroline, and so that should hopefully. Yeah, she started you know... this tournament badly in a lot of the same way that Federer did at Indian Wells a couple mm. weeks ago. Just kind of gutting through wins. Exactly. Her first round win against Shahar, or second round against Shahar Pair, was terrible. It was a, yeah. She did not need to go three sets with Shahar Pair, but she did, and she survived it, and she's all the stronger for it. As Kelly Clarkson has sung through the stadium many a time, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Hi, Steph. (laughs) A little shout-out to our our producer who we fired. A little bit, yeah. We'll we'll have her back sometime. I thought you were making a Britney Spears uh, reference. That's where my mind was. Oh, I only use Britney Spears references when I'm talking about Serena. Uh, I gotcha. So you ready to switch to the men? Yeah. Always. So we got a question. We'll lead off with the questions because we're all about the people this week. Uh, our question was... Um, um, what about... It's from, it's from Panders or underscore Panders on Twitter asking the NCR Tennis Twitter about Roddick. Plays vintage Roddick Tennis to beat Fed and then tries to grind out a win against Pico... I don't get his thinking. Courtney, how would you evaluate Andy Roddick's fairly bizarre Sonny Erickson Open? Andy out of shape. Yeah. I mean, I think that uh, it's almost the same um, response that I would have to people who, and I was one of them initially before I realized that that she was tired, but um, kind of not really understanding why Venus wasn't attacking against Aga. You know, she was baselining against her. Um, she wasn't attacking the net as much as she should have been. Um, and it was really, really puzzling. But then you realize that that she was fatigued. And, you know, that's basically what happened to Roddick. He only had um, he had less than 24 hours, I think, yeah. to turn around from the Fed match. Which is tough, which... emotionally as much as physically. Exactly. I mean, the guy who's like the arch villain of your life, and you finally beat him for only the third time in 24 attempts. And you exactly. have to go out there and play some guy you honestly really don't care about in Juan Monaco. You know, that has to be tough to come down it's, to come down from that in order to Exactly. And so, you know, he was tired and he couldn't, you know, <clears throat> kind of muster much effort once it got to about like I think it was like four four ish or something in the first set, and then he just basically didn't win a game or maybe won one more game for the rest of the match. Yeah. So um <clears throat> I think that He was up four two and then won one more game. Yeah, there it is. Seven five six zero. There it is. Um, so, I mean, I think that the best thing to take away from Andy's run in Miami is really the Fed win. I think that that said more uh, about his kind of position within the game and and what he's still capable of than a loss to Juan Monaco twenty four hours later. Mm-hmm. Um, that said, you know the way that the schedule is. I mean, I guess it's probably good because it's clay, and, and he's always going to take quite a bit of the clay season off. He's probably just going to play the mandatories and the French. Yeah. Um, but he needs to, uh, you know, he has to get back in shape. This is a guy who's been struggling with injury through the first quarter of the season. He hasn't played a lot of matches because he's been losing in relatively early rounds. So, you know, to have to string together 
you know, four wins um, in a tournament was was tough. Um, so I don't know. I mean, I kind of give him a pass on the Pico loss. I, I don't. And to be fair, Monaco was playing really well. Playing, uh, yeah, in Miami. So it wasn't like you know Andy gave it to him. I mean, Monaco really, really played that match well. And very, and very uncharacteristically for himself, Roddick seemed to give himself a pass for the loss. I mean, that was the most upbeat and least you know sarcastic that I've ever seen Andy Roddick after a loss. I mean, he really understood that, you know, the positive signs from the Federer win really outweighed underachieving less than 24 hours later for him in a long-term sense. That's so huge. I think that he will be able to keep that belief, and or I think it's going to stay with him as long as he stays healthy. Because, I mean, last time he got hurt, initially his hamstring, uh, before that showed open was during practice. And he also got injured between Wimbledon and Cincinnati last year during practice as well. So... His body is not as reliable as it once was, but if he can keep it healthy, I think he could really do a uh, a pretty decent grass season. We could see him have sort of a uh, run the way Leighton Hewitt did in '09. Remember when he got some yep. Del Potro early and made the uh, quarters? Yeah. Something like that, I think, is a reasonable hope for Andy Roddick. So, and once you get to that late stage of the majors, you know, who knows? Best of five, anything can happen, I guess. Yeah. No doubt. Yeah. So, yeah, after he beat Andy Roddick, uh, Juan Monaco went on to really crush Marty Fish in what had been Marty Fish's best tournament of 2012, only the quarters, beating, you know, Al Magro and Frank Dancevic and Kevin Anderson along the way. Although all three of those guys had been playing really well. So those mm-hmm, those mm-hmm. names. They're, they're good. They're solid wins. All three of those were solid wins. All three of those guys had won pretty sizable tournaments in 2012. Or not, mm-hmm. I mean, tournaments. Not all that huge. But yeah, I mean, so what do you what did you take away from that fish Monaco match for each of them, and that, especially for Monaco who is still in this tournament? It's impressive to me that Juan Monaco has been able to do this on hard courts. Yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, he's if you watch him, you know, I'm 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 kind of so used to him constantly being you know ten feet behind the baseline, no, and playing from back there and. I definitely noticed this week that he's hugging the baseline a lot better. His movement to recover from shots that he has to hit from behind the baseline to get back up to the baseline um, has been much better. His speed going forward has been phenomenal. I mean, some of the pickup volleys and, and gets that he was making today, I think that those are the ones that completely broke Marty Fish's spirit, especially early on. Yeah. Um, and I think that, that Fish really did lose this match in the first like two or three games. He just... He was playing all right, and then, but but Monica was was really really playing well, and from there, Fish kind of checked out. He had a bit of a, a bit of a surge, or at least stabilized uh, in the second set. But that was just a really bad, really bad match for Marty. And I'm, I'm not gonna say it's a bad effort because I don't really love questioning an athlete's effort because yeah. you don't know. I mean, he's trying, but it was just a horrible performance. I mean, just horrible. And I and. I think I was talking to, to you about this before, Ben, that, that I've never heard the ESPN commentary booth get so negative. That was that was really surprising. On an American player, the way that, that Fowler, uh, Patrick McEnroe, and Brad Gilbert did today. Yeah, I almost wondered if something had you know happened there because they were really tearing into Marty Fish. Yeah, I mean, rightfully so. It was almost like, 
It was almost as though they had read John. I'm sure. That, I'm sure they did. About, I'm sure they did. Yeah, about conflicts of interest last week, and it's. I've definitely noticed a bit more of like. I even noticed it. I think I was listening to Gimmelstab commentate the Roddick loss to Pico, and he was also kind of a little bit surprisingly critical. I was a bit shocked. So hmm. I don't know. It was odd. Hmm. Yeah. So that's interesting. So we'll link to that in our posts. So if you haven't read yeah. it, you should read it. Cause that's great. And it's a lot of things we've talked about. I don't know if we ever talked about it on here before that content, but it's the things we talk about in person a lot because tennis is a very small, very insular, incestuous community in a lot of ways. And not, I mean, it's when you say insular, it means one thing. And has one connotation. When you say incestuous, obviously it has a negative yeah. connotation. It's and not a positive it's, kind of incest. It's not a it's not a positive kind of incest, I would say. But um, there are, and John does point this out in his write-up, um, that there are positives and that there are efficiencies that come with the way that the tennis community does exist. Oh yeah. Um, and obviously, I mean, I think Ben and I have kind of seen that. We've we've kind of experienced it in different ways. Um, where having personal relationships within the industry behind closed doors can help you get things done. Oh, it yeah. can help you get information and allow you to report the stuff that people want to know. And if you don't build, if you don't proactively build those relationships, then you get locked out yeah. because this, because it is a very insular community and there are only a few people who kind of are the real big decision makers. It's a trade-off so, that tennis sort of has made, maybe not, you know, knowingly or intentionally but basically there's more access but maybe less objectivity always guaranteed always the access is guaranteed the objectivity is not guaranteed compared to something like your average i don't know nfl broadcast where these commentators who sort of rotate around the country covering games they don't really know the people involved they might do like a pre-game interview with them that week but it's not like they're you know working with them at davis cup or at the uh, Darren Cahill was at the tournament in Miami, just watching Adidas players, not commentating at all. He was just there. I saw him at the Wozniacki match, and yep. yeah, I mean, he's just there, being a part of tennis. And when he does step behind the microphone, he brings all of that full-time experience with these players close up, with him. So yeah, and maybe there are I mean, grains it... of salt you have to take things with occasionally, but you know, I've never shied away from grains of salt. <laughs> oh, so true literally and figuratively um yeah no i i you know i think twitter um i always go back to kind of the technology aspect of things and especially twitter and how it's kind of revolutionized how this sport in particular is covered but i do think because there is really a handful of of tennis reporters or tennis writers or tennis bloggers that people pay attention to mm-hmm. um what twitter allows you to do is effectively track um, to the extent that people are public about their relationships or how they feel about things, um, kind of track who is in tight with who, uh, with whom, sorry, um, who is probably, and based on that, well, then that writer or reporter or commentator is going to be less inclined to speak ill of this player and I know this because I see how chummy they are on Twitter. Yeah. And if that's how chummy they are on Twitter, Lord knows how chummy they are in actual real life. So, you know, I do think that so long as the conflicts, and this has always been my position, so long as the conflicts are made public, 
and are made known, then people can work around them the way they want to. In other words, I can discount X commentator's thoughts about X player because I know that he or she is in the bag for them. Um, When it's veiled, though, in the way that, and I think that that was the issue, I think, with Mary Jo Fernandez's relationship with the Federer camp, um, a little bit, um, arguably, I think, with Gimel Saab's relationship with the American guys, um, uh, definitely Cahill's relationship to the Adidas players isn't brought up enough to be to make it widely known to the general public. Yeah. Um, you know, make it known, disclose it, and and then maybe there's less of an issue. Yeah. I mean, and they have, they all have, or I mean, at least Cahill, I have heard do that. During, yes. I've never heard, I've never heard Fernandez do it. I've never heard Gable stop do it. I don't think. But Cahill, during Ernest Golbus's uh, big run in Los Angeles last year, did mention several times during the broadcast that he had been working with Golbus, you know, for the past. Yeah, and, and I did I not really hide broad... his happiness that Golbus was winning. <laughs> right. I mean, I think that, that the other commentators are pretty good about it sometimes of saying, you know, well, Darren, you're part of the Adidas player development program. You've worked with this player. Or Patrick, you know, you're the, you were the Davis Cup captain. Mary Jo, you are a Fed Cup captain. Jim Courier, you are Davis Cup captain. Right, so those those conflicts are disclosed, which is good. I mean, that's the way that you do it, right? I mean, we have to do it as writers, and as to the I mean, you do more journalism than I do, but to the extent that that you have to report on something, if there is some sort of conflict, you have to disclose it. So there's no reason why they shouldn't have to either. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Doesn't mean you can't report the story. It just means you have to say that okay, there there is this issue. So take, you know, take it all for what you will. We're all about transparency. Absolutely. Except for when it comes to the netted thing that Martina Navratilova wore on Dancing with the Stars. Oof. We can do without oh. that. Too much Martina. What did, what did you love think, you, what, what love you, you Martina, about, but too much. We weren't planning on talking about that either. What, what did you think about Martina crashing out first on Dancing, being the second tennis player to lose in the very first hurdle? I am all about, personally, I am all about merit. I believe in meritocracies. I think that Martina was probably the lowest, like probably the worst dancer. Okay. Um, having watched the clips, and I, I don't watch Dancing with the Stars, but I did watch the first episode, and, and I think that she was a bit more like forced and strained than everyone else. So, in fairness, probably yeah. Like, I guess it makes sense that she's voted off first, but. Doesn't I don't know. I think it's what a, is do you think about... it's a ten, do you think it's a tennis thing? Is tennis not mainstream enough to really push the pop culture buttons to get people to pick up their phones and vote for tennis players? I think that has to be part of it. I think that has to be part of it. I think that also but I but I mean so many of those quote unquote stars and let's say let's let's be honest, they're using that term stars very, very broadly. Because mm-hmm. I haven't heard of I feel like their casting has peaked. I feel like it was better yeah. years ago. They're, they're, I mean, one of the women on there is like an opera singer yeah. who happens to look like a model, but she's like an opera singer that I've never heard of. There's like child actors who are all grown up that I've never heard of. I mean, but you know, but you, they, but you know, Jaleel White though. You're excited for Urkel. Let's not let's not kid about that. Um, I'm like fine, 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 fine. I'm excited about Urkel. I was I'm gonna say really I like Urkel. Urkel 2.0 happening. Jaleel White's a bit <laughs> annoying. Urkel's rad. I love Urkel. But Jaleel White is, like, so, like, when he acts, like, not acts, but when he is just himself, you can just see him, basically, his entire persona is, I'm not Urkel. 
Like, it's so like, dude, I'm just a dude and I'm awesome and I'm not a dweeb. And, and it's, but at the, it's just it's so work. overcompensating, though, that I find so overcompensating, so transparent. And I'm all uh, maybe, transparency. maybe, yeah. Anyway, yeah. Different topic. Who I was talking, we were talking about this in the Miami press room once she got voted off. Who, which tennis player would you send to go be our knight in shining armor? to do well on Dance of the Stars? If you could pick any one player, past or present. Past or present? Yeah. Um, he was a past player. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I think it's a pretty obvious choice, but I'm going to have to go Justine Hennon. <laughs> Why are you laughing? Why am I no, um, Gaia Malfis. <laughs> okay, that's a good pick. I, I, I would go um, Agassi. I don't know. Ooh, exactly. Yeah, he has the, the he has the cachet. He has he would the get cachet. Some... He has the sort of you know smarminess that he can do that would sort of work in the banter. I think. Yeah. So he's a charmer. Yeah. He's a charmer. That's a good call. Yeah, so it's a good call. I could see him doing it some year, possibly. It's not. Or Serena. Yeah, Serena. Serena would be interesting. I don't think Serena would do that. I think I think Serena is above that. She'll stick to the really, especially to the high profile. High profile shows like Drop Dead Diva. Thank you very much. Yeah, she's gonna. She's just too busy with her home shopping network. Uh, <laughs> you ever watched whatnot. one of those? Because I haven't. Oh yeah, no, they're fantastic. Oh, if you get the chance, they're on YouTube. I'm pretty sure. Look up Serena. We'll post one. But look up Serena's stints on the home shopping network, like for her her Jewelry. accessory line. Oh, it's phenomenal. <laughs> phenomenal. You will learn. Whole new ways to use the English language to describe cold metal. <laughs> that's pretty, oh, it's great. That's pretty great. The men's semis are coming up very soon. The matchups are Novak Djokovic versus Juan Monaco and Andy Murray versus Rafael Nadal. I don't remember our predictions exactly, but I'm pretty confident none of us had Monaco in the semis. I think you're right there. Courtney, how do you see the final four playing out? Well, I think that Juan Monaco's fantastic run in Miami ends at the hands of a resurgent Novak Djokovic. I think Novak's played really, really well. He had a bit of a blip today, uh, just for like a few minutes, I think, against Ferrer. But um, he's hitting it clean. He's moving remarkably well. One slight note of concern is that after a couple of long rallies against Ferrer, he kept bending over and and touching his left ankle. Hmm. Um, as though there was something going on there, but you know, at the same time, he'd run like a rabbit the next point. So, yeah. but it it was noticeable. Um, so obviously, Novak into the final. Um, Murray and Rafa is a really interesting one. I mean, I know that a lot of commentators are inclined to dismiss Rafa's complaints about his body, um, and he's complaining about his knees well, or his knee right now. I'm I'm not not I, I wouldn't dismiss them outright. Like I'm not one to say like oh, here goes Rafa complaining about his body again, which I feel like a lot of people do. Um, I, think but, there, I think there is precedent to feel that way, though, because of what happened yeah, yeah, in Australia. In Australia, we heard about how he did something to his knee in his hotel room, and then he could, like, couldn't walk. And then he was fine. It never showed no, in matches, I don't think, any problem with the knee. He talked about it a lot. But in terms thing- of actually during matches, I don't think that it actually, we ever saw it bear itself out. Not saying it wasn't legit, it's just I think his tennis can has a way of transcending it. That maybe. But the reason why I'm more inclined to give Rafa 
my ear when he's complaining about his health is that I think that he's generally a very single-minded, single-focused guy, very focused on his tennis. And that focus is really what allows him to kind of be who he is and then to play the type of tennis at the level that he's able to play it consistently. The times where I really feel like he has been able to get distracted in matches is when he, it, when he does think that he's suffering for some injury. And we saw that a little bit, at least my reading of it, uh, in his absolutely horrible match against Joe Wilfred Sanga um, in the quarterfinals, uh, which he won in three sets, but, but he did not play well. Luckily for him, Sanga played even worse. Um, but, uh, but he just seemed distracted. It, it just, it didn't seem right. And it, it wasn't, I'm not entirely sure that I would chalk it up just to, he was, he had a bad day on the tennis court. There was just a bit of, I don't know. Uh, yeah. Distract, just distraction. Um, that that I could sense. So, um, you know, he said after the match that that he was really concerned about just recovering um, to be able to play Andy. He could go out and play gangbusters and, and everything was fine. But, um, yeah, I, I, I'm just not one to just completely discount it when he's complaining about his body. I, think, I don't think anyone will be surprised either way. I don't think anybody will be surprised if it does turn out that he is, you know, really hampered by this injury and Murray runs over him or if he is totally fine and shows no sign of it. I think you've come to, I mean, it just shows to the kind of, you know, superlative athlete that he is that yeah. can rise above this stuff so quickly and in ways that really aren't, you know, explicable, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. No, I think that's right. So, that's right. so winner, so, pick, pick a winner on the men's side. Djokovic into the final. I mean, I had in my pre-tournament picks, I had Rafa into the final. Um, I will probably pick with that because Andy's been quite up and down this tournament. Okay. Um, he was he was up and down against Tipsarovich as well. So yeah, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna take uh, Novak and Rafa. And uh, based on my pre-tournament pick was that Rafa would win, but based on what I've seen this tournament, I think Novak would win. So I'm gonna just say ditto. For yeah, that. I think it'll be Novak over Rafa in the final. So now it's time for our weekly installment of take a number the thing where we pay, take a random number between one and a hundred see what player corresponds to that number in the rankings and talk about them the man and woman in the atc and wta rankings who match that number we got our lowest number ever last time which was 40 so we really are still itching for a nice much lower number and we'll see what we get you ready courtney I'm ready. The random number generator spits out number 67. Have we done 67 already? I feel like we did 67 already. Hmm. No, we did Well, not the, Well, not on my side. If not we get player. a repeat person, we'll throw it out. Yes, that's oh. fair. <laughs> okay. Um, this could be short. Courtney, <laughs> who do you have on the women's side for number 67? I have for number 67... The only player, I believe, in the top 100 from Greece. Oh, I didn't know you were <laughs> that so, high. Yeah, you you got so excited. Um, Eleni Dinalidou. <laughs> oh, Eleni. Okay, and Eleni's um partner this week is um none other than the second Japanese man in the top 100. Who I had no clue was ranked this high. Whoa! Um, go! Go! Sueda! Go! Number 67. 
Go, 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 go. Sounds like you have a lot to say about Ghost Wayne. So that's encouraging. Let's talk about That was really all I had to say about Ghost Wayne. But, um, Let's talk about Danilo first, like... so. Okay. Uh, so, Eleni Danilo. <laughs> How do you pronounce her name, really? Eleni Danilo. Danilo, I think. I think. Eleni Danilo. Okay. I think I always add about four extra syllables to her last name. Okay, that's as you should. There's so many people yeah, in that name. Yes, but uh, but Eleni Danilo is from Greece. She's ranked number 67. Um, been around the tour for, for a good amount of time. Um, she's 30, or 29 going on 30, if I'm doing my math right. Yeah. Yep. Um, so she's she's getting up there a little bit. Um, but she's got a one-handed backhand. That's one of the things that, that kind of always makes her stand out. Um, she's one of the few. I don't know how many one-handed backhands are in the top 100 anymore. Very few. Very few. I feel like it's only. It's, it can't be more than three. Her and Carlos Suarez Navarro. Oh, Skivoni. Skivoni. That's three. Um, not many, basically. Not many. Yeah. So she's so she's one of the few who has a one-handed backhand. Um, you know, I mean, hasn't really done much as of late. Um, she's like a she's a confusing player to me because she has like a really almost perfect body for tennis. Yeah. Tall. You know, she's almost six feet tall, lanky, um, you know, and kind of has a look of a jock. Mm-hmm. But when you actually see her play, there's like very little power in her shots at all. She she, um, she reminds me a lot of Amelie Moresmo in that way. Obviously, yeah, I guess. Sort of like a very poor woman's Amelie Moresmo. She's had her best results on grass, I believe. And she has sort yes. of a gracefulness to her game that makes you think that it's like nice, but it's sort of like, where's the power? Yeah. Because Marisma similar Marisma was very athletic, fairly muscular, didn't seem to use a lot of that muscle ever in the yeah. way she played. And Eleni's crowning moment, I think, was when in two thousand five, I believe, she beat Justin Anna Arden in the first round of Wimbledon. Back when Really? Yeah. That that I remember it was either oh five or oh six. It was right after Justine had won the French Open one of the times. And Eleni went in there and beat her in the first round, and it was very surprising. And you know how, like, sometimes there are players where you don't really know why you know them. Yeah, she's one of those. She, I think she's one of those. Like now, I understand because I've always known of her, and really, I've only seen her play like a, a very few number of times, like maybe a small handful, like four or five times. Well, um, she had she had other good results in the middle of the decade. It's actually I'm impressed that she's as high ranked as she is there because she's been in qualies a lot. In the last yep. four years. Well, she's been ranked as high as 22. Yeah, 22, yeah. That's impressive, yeah, back she, in 2002. There was some match in the U.S. Open, some re, some match where the U.S. Open draw completely fell apart. And I want to say she was in a fourth-round match against Shinobu Asagoe in, yeah, in 2004. Fourth round against Shinobu. And it was just, it was just, you know, I don't know, it's... I don't know what you can compare that to. Basically, there you can go. We, can we just take a, a brief moment and, and to all the listeners who are out there, I'm just talking to you now. I'm not talking to Ben. Can we just all agree that Ben is the rain man of tennis? <laughs> How do you remember this crap? This is incredible. Fourth round. Um, is, come on. Everyone remembers where they were during the Asagoa Danilo fourth round at the U.S. Open. <laughs> what a great match that was. I'm pulling up the draw now. That was a 7-6-4-6-6-3 win for Shinobu. Shinobu, Shinobu was great. No, Eleni also, I think, had a big moment 
in the 04 Olympics, which were in Athens. Um, she did better than her seed, although not great, but better than her seed. And I think she was one of the, I mean, because Greece is an Olympic host. You're not going to find an Olympic host that has many fewer competitive athletes in Greece, honestly. So uh-huh. for her to do as well as that, I think was a fairly big deal. I remember reading yeah. someone write an article about their experiences watching people watch Eleni at the Olympics or something. Huh. So we'll see if we can find that and I'll post it. I have no idea who the author was, but I remember thinking it was pretty good at the time. Fair enough. So it was about like, um, people's favorite moments ever watching sports. And some non-tennis writer picked this Elaine Ganilla match. Nice. Yeah, she made the third. She made the third. She played the third round there. Is that right? I don't know. Yeah, I want to say she played yeah. Malik in that Olympics, and I think I think Malik won a bronze. So. Yep. We'll see if I'm right about that. Just like I was right about Shinobu. Anyway, yeah, she's she's a nice player. Watch. She plays a lot of solid doubles now, and I'm impressed that she's been able to come back from this many injuries to play. To be number 67, that's impressive. Yeah, never, that's pretty I've high. I've that high at all. Greece has no, no real tennis presence. I mean, Marcus Baidatis is essentially ethnically Greece, but he plays for Cyprus. Right. Um, I saw her talking to Ava Esteraki in Greek once during the City Open tournament last That's pretty cool. So that was a rare Greek conversation in pro tennis. Yeah, so that's Elaine Danilidou for you. Okay. Um, she plays a lot of so go- with Jasmine Wurr, Ver, for what that's worth very little uh-huh. um the guy go let's go to go let's go to go what do you know about go i don't know a whole lot about go except that whenever i see him like i i i know that he wins more matches than i would expect for him to win that's fair so I, that's kind of my big thing with him is that i i just i see his name all the time um, he played, I think he had a really, really good Davis Cup, I believe, uh, maybe this last round. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I want to say so he, that, got, he got a win over... Um, a big win for him. I think he, I think he might have beaten our first ever... Uh, Dodig. Dodig! I think he might have beaten Ivan Dodig in there. He did, yeah. in a five-setter, 7-5 in the fifth. Yeah. Um, so, this, so that's Go. This is Go's career high ranking by some margin. Go had barely been inside the top 100 ever in his career. Um, like only a few weeks out of his entire career earlier in 2011. And now he broke the top 100 again in... What month is this? Um, he broke the top 100 again in... Um, I can't do the dates when they flip them like this in Europe. He, right yeah, before the he, he, did the, he broke broke it right before the Australian Open, and then he jumped ten spots th- this last rankings week to get to number sixty-seven, which is his career high. So he uh, always going. How about, how about this about Gosueta? This year in twenty twelve, he beat Stanislav Wawrinka. Whoa! Way to go, Joe! <laughs> six four six four in the quarterfinals of Chennai to make the semifinals. I have no memory of that whatsoever. Yeah, Good. and he made it through qualifying. I knew it. I knew there was a big result where I was like, dang, go. Hmm, that's pretty cool. Um, he also beat Bobby, Robbie Ginepri, uh to win a Honolulu uh, challenger. Oh, Hon- that's that's not, not a tiny challenger, Honolulu. It's not a tiny challenger. He beat Jack Sock there as well. Um, let's see what else is here. Uh, yeah, Chennai, making, yeah, he- making the semis at Chennai as a qualifier. That's the big one. That's I think that's his career result, really. Um, he just won a challenger. Oh, he just made the finals of a challenger in Singapore. 
Yeah, he's, he's down in the challenger circuit, which is probably about right for him right now. But he's good with that 62, he will get into big tournaments. I mean, if he keeps 67, excuse me, he will he gets into the top 50, you know, he'll probably get start getting into like Canada and Cincinnati. Yeah. It'll be interesting to see how he deals with that. So, yep. I have seen him play sure. fractions of matches during qualifying when I've been there. He's come to DC a few times, I think. So, it's it's cool that he's up there. It's cool that this guys who are 27 can really stick with it long enough to be a late bloomer and make these huge jumps. It's it's nice. That's what, I guess, the age rule sort of let happen, or the way maturity is part of tennis now. That is true. That is true. And maybe, and maybe who knows, maybe he'll wind up being top, I don't know, 40 at some point. Good you go, go. Go, go. <laughs> so that was go. Go has went. And it, go is gone. it was gone. And that was take a number... Edition number six. Last thing we're going to talk about is from a question we got from a big time tennis tweeter, Slice Tweets. Big time, huge time, huge, huge time, huge. Ben. Don't, don't, don't undersell. Let's let's be respectful of our colleagues. I wasn't. Was I underselling? I thought I was being sincere. <laughs> I know. Okay. Anyway. <laughs> Slice Tweets asks us, she says she would love for us to discuss why a brand would hire slash pay money for Wayne Odesnik to star in an ad when no one likes him. Courtney, can you explain to us what Elena of the Slice Tweets is referring to? If you have been watching the Miami tournament, specifically this week, um, on, tennis on the te- on Tennis Channel, you will have noticed that there was a commercial that was running about some guy, and if you didn't pay attention like I wasn't paying attention at first, uh, you wouldn't notice the commercial. It just seems like one of the typical Tennis Channel commercials that runs where it looks like it was shot on a flip cam and edited on a Mac, like really low-budget um, uh, stuff. But it's about a guy, it's a guy talking about some strings, and if you... With a friend. Tore, with a friend. With a friend. If you tore your your face away from your tweet deck um, for a split second and you looked up, you would have noticed that that person is actually Wayne Odesnik. Mm-hmm. So um, Wayne Odesnik has a commercial on Tennis Channel for strings. The string company is Genesis Strings, which let's face it, has anyone heard of Genesis Strings before today no, or before have, this commercial? They have people talking so, about them. So there, the, the the publicity has worked with respect to getting at least people knowing, recognizing your brand. Now, do you want them to associate a guy who was caught bringing in HGH into Australia? Uh, do you want that attached to your product? A guy, not, not, get... only, not only was that his moniker, which we talked about before when we talked about this, it's not like he would have gotten many ads before that. Right. He was. I liked him. I liked his game a lot before that happened. He was a very scrappy, very very hard fighting guy. Really was a cool baseline shot maker, counter puncher type person. He was America's clay king. Pretty much. Yeah. No. He would actually. He even before he was unpopular er in the U.S. He would go down and play South American. He would play the South American clay swing when everybody else was in San Jose and stuff. That's just where he felt best. He made the third round of the French Open once, losing a fairly close match to Novak Djokovic there, actually. Yep. Um, yeah, I mean, he has had some good results in his in his career. 
And I guess he's... But yeah, but the question we're being asked, not who is Wayne Desmond, but why would someone hire him? First of all, he can't cost much. Let's be, <laughs> let's be very clear about that. Wayne did not he's, cost He's much. probably still paying for the strings. <laughs> That's probably true. But at the same time, what added value does Wayne Desmond bring? Is it better to have Wayne Desmond or no ATP player in this commercial? I would argue that it would be better to not have an ATP player in the commercial and just actually just have a basic commercial talking about the technology behind your strings. I mean, it's, it's, I think that the point that you made, Ben, is, is exactly right. That pre-controversy, would Wayne Odesnik have this, get these sorts of deals? No, I don't think so. I can't think so. He's not the charming, you know, auteur that is Michael Russell for yeah. Tennis Express. Yeah, Michael, my, Michael Russell's out there being like a total shell and just like, you know, being such a ham in his commercials. And it's endearing in a way. But Odesnik's it is. But Odesnik, for the price you get Odesnik, you can get comparably priced guys who would not who would not sort of, you know, bring a, you know, bad, leave a bad taste in people's mouths. You could get... You can get a Ginepri. You could, uh, Ginepri, yeah, you could probably get for a comparable price. Maybe a little bit more for Ginepri. You could get a Kevin Kim... You could get a. Uh... You can get a Spadia. Oh, you Spadia would be. You awesome. could get two Spadias. <laughs> dueling and Spadias. You're, and you're, you would get dueling Spadias, and, and, you'd get some free wrapping. That would be awesome. I would buy whatever Wayne does. What, sorry, whatever. Woo! I would buy whatever Vince Spadia told me to. Pretty yeah. much how it goes. Mm-hmm. Now I do take question issue with part of the slices question here, when okay. she says. Why would you pay money for Wayne Odesnik to start an ad when no one likes him? I have been to Wayne Odesnik's website, WayneOdesnikTennis.com, which is new. He's also on Twitter, has one tweet telling you about the website. Um, and no, it's not fair to say that no one likes him because it links to his <laughs> Facebook page. And as of recording this, 18 people like him. 18 <laughs> people. So to say no one likes him, that's just bad statistics, Slice. So. That's that's really bad statistics. That's just yeah, that's bad. So there we go. Eighteen people. Eighteen people. That's within the margin of error. <laughs> With a standard deviation yeah. of twenty. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> Although negative two would be, would be mean. Facebook likes is in the negatives. That'd be amazing. Facebook dislikes. Yeah, there you go. I mean, the bottom line is, look, we never, we didn't know about. I mean. I don't know. People are talking about it. Yeah. So Gen- I think Genesis it- has to be pretty happy with this. You know, question for you, ultimately, do you think Tennis Channel should play the ad? Do you think they should stop playing it? I think that if so long as this company is paying money, I think Tennis Channel needs to air the ad. I mean, I think that, yeah, I mean, we're not talking about a channel that um, exactly, you know, beggars can't be choosers. Yeah. So, you know, we've seen some of the dodgy commercials that air on Tennis Channel, and that's what they have to take these days, you know, just to be able to be an operable company and to, to be able to pay their bills. So if Genesis wants to foot, shell out some cash to get this thing to air, then fine, take the money. I, I don't blame Tennis Channel. I blame the company. So, you know, it, it's not for Tennis Channel to kind of you walk away from the cash. But, um, but yeah, just really questionable marketing if we were going to do a commercial on tennis channel for no challenges remaining would it look any better than that yes i think i think hopefully i dare say yes i think i think we should that's almost sounds like a challenge to ourselves your your iphone takes better resolution (laughs) video 
than whatever the heck is going on in that Genesis commercial. I don't know. If, you know, all publicity is good publicity for a company like that, which it probably is. It, it, caught, it caught our attention. We were talking about it. We now know the product. We might not buy the product, but we know the product. And that's step one. Step one, indeed. And this was episode six. Thank you very much for joining us, each and every one of you. We'll be back. Uh, we're both heading down to Charleston. So yes. pretty excited about that. Um, I'm very excited about either it. Either of us have ever been there before. I've wanted to go to this tournament so badly for a long time, so I'm, I'm super excited. So we will do an episode from there at some point in the week, and we will see you then. No more.